Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Episode 41 of the Sword of the Spirit podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, live right here on youtube.com slash Baptist. This is Benjamin Naim here with all of you for this week's edition of the podcast. You can find it on bendthebaptistkjv.com. Bendthebaptistkjv.com is the place to go if you want to see the archive of the show, both the YouTube video and the MP3 file is available for download there, as well as you can stream the audio. This podcast is available on several different platforms, including Spotify, the Stitcher radio app, and Apple Podcasts. Just use the keyword, Ben the Baptist, all one word, and you should be able to find it there, and it'll enable you to listen to this thing on the go. So if you're at the gym working out or you are doing something else and you want to multitask and you don't want to pay for YouTube Premium, which doesn't let you shut your phone's screen off and just listen, then make sure you subscribe on those various podcast platforms. Last Night or you know yesterday uh, around 5:30 obviously was the PM service at Pure Words Baptist Church and I preached on the eternal sonship of Christ there and it got me in the mood to talk about the Trinity tonight right here on this podcast in the morning I preached on envy and then I took a time machine back to 2017 2018 when the Trinity was a controversy and uh, preached a sermon about the eternal sonship of Christ, proving from the Bible that Jesus has always been the Son of God. And it got me thinking about all the different passages that are ripped out of context by these oneness heretics, these modalists, these pretend Pentecostals from Valiant Baptist Church, which isn't really a Baptist church. You know, these people who would deny the Trinity, they take different scriptures and turn them on their head to try and promote their false doctrine. I want to say on the onset that I believe oneness, modalism, is a damnable heresy. You're not saved if you deny the Trinity. You're worshiping a different God. And also, it's an attack on the deity of Christ, because in order to believe in oneness and remain logically consistent, you have to deny the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ and essentially believe that Jesus became, you know, the Messiah, in the sense, he became the Son, and he came into existence. Whereas the Bible is very clear that Jesus pre-existed with the Father. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there's other passages as well. I went over that in detail in the sermon. I'll probably upload it to this channel eventually, either tonight or tomorrow. But for this podcast, I want to 
look at some of the passages that are used by these oneness devils to claim that the Trinity is a false doctrine. And they'll go to several different places, Proverbs chapter 30, Isaiah chapter 9, John chapter 14, and elsewhere. I want to show you what these scriptures are actually saying in order to debunk their false arguments. In order to debunk their false doctrine, the purpose of the podcast tonight is just to help you sharpen your sword a little bit. You might believe the Trinity right now, but the question is, are you going to be able to give an answer to someone who comes to you ripping these verses out of context to try and teach oneness? What are you going to do then? Are you going to be able to give them an answer, or are you going to have to tuck your tail between your legs and run away because you couldn't figure out what to say? I don't want that to be you. I don't want to be in that situation myself, and by the way, I have been in a situation like that, not specifically on this doctrine, but in other conversations with people where I couldn't give them a good answer because of a lack of study on my part. And I think it's a situation nobody wants to find themselves in. So that's why I put out content like this to sharpen your sword. And we can work through this thing together as well. I'm going to look at the chat room tonight. And if there are any verses in the chat room that you guys want to contribute to the discussion and we could talk about, then don't hesitate to put it there. I see Maria YouTube 100. She said, excellent sermon, Brother Ben, and then put amen. So thank you, Maria. I do appreciate the feedback there. Maria is a dedicated fan, listener of the new IFB. And uh, I like her. So thank you, uh, Maria YouTube 100, for your uh, contributions there in the chat. Amanda Lee, Lay, rather, says hello from Ontario, Canada. And we have Celine Frodima in there as well. I'm sure more people will file in as we move along here. So I want to start off with 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I've had this one thrown in my face by modalists, by oneness heretics before to try and prove that the Trinity is false doctrine. For those who don't know, oneness is a uh, damnable heresy about the Lord Jesus Christ, which says that he is the same person as the Father and that God morphs from, it transforms from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit and he transforms into these three different modes. Whereas the Trinity says there was one God comprised of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, three distinct persons. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says in verse 6, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Now, I'm not understanding how somebody could look at this verse and then conclude oneness. It would have to be someone who's totally unsaved. It says there's one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. To me, I look at this and I see clearly distinct persons. Somehow they're able to look at this verse here and they see a oneness God. I don't know how. There's a distinction between God the Father and the distinction between the Lord Jesus Christ being made in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. There's one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ. So the one God that it's referring to there is the, the, the fact that there is one Father, but then it also says there's one Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because there is three distinct, but there are rather, three distinct persons within the Godhead, there is one God, absolutely, I believe that, 
However, this one God we're talking about, the God of the Bible, is comprised with Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Comprised of Father, Son, Holy Ghost. So that's the first one right off the bat. It's a pretty easy one to kind of just dismiss because you see a clear distinction. You know, the Father, the Son, or I'm sorry, uh, actually calls him Jesus Christ here. I don't get where they're going with this. Yeah, one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This actually proves the Trinity. So let's move on from that one. I don't know why this one was sent to me by uh, a friend of mine when I said that I was going to be doing a podcast like this. And yeah, I don't, I don't see it. Proverbs chapter 30 is another one that they would use. In verse 4, it says, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? This is another one that these oneness heretics will use here in Proverbs chapter 30. And the problem is this does not teach their doctrine at all. What they would say is it's describing one person and then it says what is his name, referring to the one person, and what is his son's name, trying to claim that the his and the son is all the same person. Well, how can somebody be his own son? So the father is his own son? Explain how that makes any sense whatsoever. It doesn't. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? You know what this is referring to? It's referring to both the father and the son. Each one of these actions here in Proverbs chapter 30 verse 4 can apply to either the Father and the Son. The Father ascended up into heaven and he descended on the earth. We know that. We know that he's gathered the wind in his fists. We know that the Father has bound the waters in a garment. We know that he's established all the ends of the earth through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's created the earth through the Son. And then the verse ends with this question, what is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? So what's the truth we can learn from this? First of all, Proverbs chapter 30 is not even teaching you about the Trinity. You notice what these modalists have to do is they have to go to the Old Testament and rip verses out of context that are not designed to teach you about the Godhead. They're not designed to teach you about the Trinity. Whereas we have clear verses. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's extremely clear there that God is comprised of three persons, made up of three persons, distinct persons. We have clear verses we can go to in the Word of God that prove the triune God is, in fact, the God of the Bible, whereas this oneness God is a counterfeit, a counterfeit that is, uh, that has been concocted by the devil. So what we can learn from Proverbs 30 verse 4 is that the Father has a name, and the Son has a name. And, of course, the Son's name was revealed in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. That's really all there is to it. So, again, you see the same thing with 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and here in Proverbs chapter 30, a distinction. You could argue a distinction in Proverbs 30, verse 4. So, so far, both these verses that are used by oneness heretics actually can be used to prove the Trinity, although I wouldn't go to Proverbs chapter 30 
to try and substantiate the Trinity doctrine. We have in the chat room trade selector says, Hi, Brother Ben. Can you talk about Isaiah 9-6? I will later on in the broadcast. Stay tuned. I'm going to give you my perspective on Isaiah 9-6. Maria YouTube 100. It's like they don't understand basic English vocabulary. I know. It makes me want to just bash my head into the nearest wall over and over again out of insanity dealing with these people. They don't know basic grammar. They don't know basic English because they're ignorant. They've been blinded by Satan. Let's go to the next one. John chapter 14. This is another place in which the modalists will go to try and promote their heresy. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You've heard probably them repeat this mantra over and over again. John 14 says in verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now there are two ways you could look at this. First of all, we know that Jesus Christ did the works of the Father. And so if you've done the works of the Father, you can then say in that way that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Another way you could look at this as well is that Jesus is the express image of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the express image of his person. Whose person? God the Father's person. And this is why the word person, by the way, is biblical. Even some Trinitarians will shy away from using the word person. They shouldn't. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 proves that you could use person to describe the three persons of the Trinity. We have a verse here in the chat room, John 5, 19. It says, shortened. The son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do, for what things whoever he doeth, these also doeth the son. Exactly. So whatever the son does, he is always in perfect obedience to the father. And so I think in that way, you could look at it as if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father because he's doing the works of the father at all times and is perfectly obedient. And in another way, you, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, because he is the express image of the Father in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Personally, I would probably go with the works as the primary application. However, I think both of them are fine. So, so far, these arguments aren't very good, as you can see. Those who would deny the Trinity which is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, have nothing. They grasp at straws. They literally have nothing. And you know what they also have in common? They also have their doctrine in common with Islam. And I mentioned this in the sermon, but Tyler Baker has more in common with Islam than he does biblical Christianity. It's Muslim apologists who rail on the Trinity. It's Muslim apologists who claim that the Trinity is blasphemous to their false God. It's Muslim apologists who uphold the oneness of God. In fact, the Quran 
upholds the oneness of God. The Quran promotes the oneness of God and teaches that God is just one person. There isn't a religion on the face of the planet other than biblical Christianity that believes that God is made up of three distinct persons. And you can point to Catholicism all you want, but at the end of the day, biblical Christianity is what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about salvation by faith alone. I'm talking about one saved, always saved. I'm talking about a religion that has salvation right, the gospel right, faith alone, every time. Churches like that are going to believe the Trinity. Every single time, other than Valiant, because that one's a cult. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Another argument that you'll see from these modalists is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is what can be affectionately called the invisible Jesus doctrine. Because they'll read 1 Timothy 6 and because they're unsaved and can't understand the Bible, will then conclude that no man has seen Jesus, which is nonsense. And of course, what they mean by that, I don't want a straw man. Even if we are talking about devils here, even if we are talking about false prophets, it's still, I believe, inappropriate to straw man anyone because it just makes you look bad. So I'm not going to straw man them. What they would say is that this applies, these verses would apply to the deity of Christ versus the humanity of Christ. They make a distinction between the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. It's a false doctrine known as Nestorianism. Jesus is both man and God at the same time. He's always been the Son. And by the way, let me make this point clear, and this is something I didn't touch on in the sermon. Jesus has always been a man as well. He's always been the Son of Man. He's always been the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I know Tyler Baker doesn't like it when Trinitarians quote that verse to promote the eternal sonship of Christ, but he can go jump in a lake for all I care because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what it's saying there. 1 Timothy 6, let's look at verse 13. And if you want to follow along at home or wherever you might be, I'll call out the references, the reference numbers, so you can do so. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13 says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, notice, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we are talking about here in verses 13 down through verses 16 is one continual thought involving the Father and the Son. But it's one continual thought. If you're looking at the verses at home or if you go in your Bible later after the podcast, whenever, and look at verses 13 through 16 in 1 Timothy chapter 6, what you'll notice is that each verse ends with either a semicolon or a colon until verse 16, which finally ends with a period. That punctuation should tell you we're dealing with one continuous thought. Now, with that in mind, I'll read verse 14 one more time and continue to the end. Verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now, the modalists would look at this and they would say, it's describing Jesus Christ. 
and they then would apply a oneness, they would apply their oneness doctrine to this, and they would say, because it uses that name there, King of Kings, that this, I'm sorry, yeah, they would say that this is talking about uh, uh, Jesus because it uses that name, King of Kings. I got kind of sidetracked for a minute there. They would say it's talking about Jesus because it uses the name King of Kings. It's not. It's actually not talking about Jesus. And here are a few clues that'll tell you that it's not. In fact, there's only one clue that I need to give you to tell you this is not talking about Jesus. It says, who, hath, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen. Now explain to me, if this is talking about Jesus, how is it possible that no man can see Jesus? And by the way, it wouldn't be saying that no man has seen the glorified Jesus. I know that you oneness devils like to make a distinction between the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, but guess what? The glorified Jesus was seen, and he was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. So there goes that theory. So your no man has seen Jesus doctrine is stupid. Here's what this is saying. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus. So we're talking about the Father and Christ Jesus. Verse number 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show. Now what is being shown? The appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose time is that going to be shown? In the Father's time, which in his time, God the Father, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ will be shown. This is what you will conclude if you actually pay attention to the grammar that's used in these verses. God the Father is going to be the one who shows the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that at his incarnation, it was the Son who was sent by the Father. And at the rapture, the, the Son is going to be sent by the Father as well. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, But of that day and hour knoweth no man know, not the, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So it's the Father who knows when Jesus Christ is going to come back. It's the Father who's going to show Jesus Christ. It's the Father who's going to be responsible for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fits perfectly with 1 Timothy chapter 6, which in his times, God the Father's time. And when you compare that to the verse I quoted there in Matthew chapter 24, it, it aligns perfectly. So what, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, this is where the oneness people will say, well, see, this is Jesus. It's got to be talking about Jesus. And since verse 16 says, no man hath seen him, whom no man hath seen, then they would say, look, that applies to God the Father. Therefore, Jesus is the Father, and he just morphs or transforms between the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem with their argument. You can use multiple, I'm sorry, you could use certain names interchangeably amongst the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father is the King of Kings as well. You're going to sit there and tell me God the Father is not the King of Kings? You're going to sit there and tell me that God the Father is not the Lord of Lords? That's blasphemous. 
God the Father is also the King of Kings. He is also the Lord of Lords. That does not have to exclusively apply to the Son of God. That does not have to exclusively apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. These modalists think that these names apply only to Jesus, and therefore that's how they conclude that Jesus is the Father. False. There are several names that apply both to the Father and the Son. The Ancient of Days applies to both the Father and the Son. What does that mean? It just means that he's always been. God in general has existed from everlasting. Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation is used to describe both the Son and, I also believe, in, uh, let me just fact check this here. Let me go to Revelation. I believe it's in chapter number 21. Let me just make sure that that is the case because I don't want to say something that might not be accurate. So Revelation chapter 21. Yeah, right here in verse 6. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, here's the thing. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, which I'll turn there myself, Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, the Bible says there, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That's Jesus Christ talking. But I believe that there's an argument to be made that in Revelation chapter 21, that the, the uh, God the Father is talking because it says in verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, here's why I believe that. If you study the Trinity Revelation, which, by the way, I'm not saying that Revelation is the place to go if you want to learn the Trinity doctrine. You ought to go to the clear verses. But the oneness devils like to go to Revelation. You look at those words, he that sat upon the throne, him that sat on the throne, it's referring to God the Father. Now, I think that the throne is probably a two-seater in the sense that Jesus Christ, he is sitting with God the Father. He's at the right hand of God the Father. We know that. However, when it uses those specific words there, he that sat on the throne, it's God the Father, and Jesus Christ actually takes the book out of the right hand of him that sits on the throne in Revelation chapter 5. So with that in mind and based on the context, I believe that Alpha and Omega in Revelation 21 is God the Father, whereas Alpha and Omega in Revelation 1 verse 8 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, not that this is authoritative or anything, but I'll show this to you. In case you're watching on YouTube, this is my Holman Bible right here. Red letters. I don't know if you guys can see this, but you have red letters in verse number 8. Okay? Let me try and point to it. Right, right there. Okay? Red letters in verse number 8. And then Revelation 21 verse 6. No red letters because it's not Jesus talking. It is God the Father. But anyway, here's the point. There are interchangeable names or titles that can be used to describe both Jesus and the Father, and I do think that King of Kings is one of them. Kevin Doty says, do you think the HS has a throne? I'm not sure what you mean by that, Kevin, if you could just provide a little more detail on what the question is there. Uh, but yeah, Alpha and Omega, again, is pointing to the pre-existence of Christ, the eternality of Christ, and so, of course, that would also apply 
to God the Father, because God the Father has also always existed, that is what makes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit deity. They've always existed. They've, always, they've had a relationship with each other going back into eternity from everlasting. The Father also is King of Kings. So here's my point, which in time past he shall show, this is God the Father, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that also would apply to, to the Father as well, as well, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen. Again, God the Father, that makes sense. Nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting, amen. Now, why would that make sense? Because no man has seen God the Father. That's what Exodus 33 says in verse 20. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Obviously, that's a reference to the Father, that no man can see the Father's face and live. 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, uh, John, it says here in John chapter 1, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man has seen God at any time. What would that be talking about? Obviously, the Father, because people did see Jesus. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, hath declared him. That fits with Scripture. So 1 Timothy 6, I think, has been debunked. They claim that, you know, it doesn't... Uh, you know, they claim that it proves oneness, but it actually doesn't. Kevin Doty says Holy Spirit. Okay, sorry, I messed that up. Do you think the Holy Spirit has a throne? I think the Holy Spirit is not on the throne, but is rather before the throne or in front of the throne, sort of surrounding the throne. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's uh, what I believe. Don't worry about that, Kevin. He says Holy Spirit. Sorry, I was being lazy. No worries in the chat room there. No, I, I would say no, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a throne, but is perhaps surrounding the throne in some way. Um, that, that's my opinion. All right, well, let's move on to the next one here. Isaiah 9-6 is coming up, folks. So if you tuned in for that one, then stay tuned because I will give you my perspective on that here momentarily. Just needed a sip of water. When you're doing a podcast by yourself, you tend to get parched. All right, let's look at John 10. This is the verse that says, I and my Father are one. I'll give you the context. Verse 27, Jesus is talking here. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then it says, I and my Father are one. So this is another one that these modalists will take and say, Oh, look, see? Since it says, I and my Father are one there, since Jesus claimed that he is one with the Father, that must also mean that he is the Father. False. Again, God is comprised of three distinct persons, and the way that I like to think about this is the three could refer to who God is. Well, who is God? Father, Son, Holy Ghost. The one... That could refer to what God is. And we know God is deity. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Three equals Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One equals God. Easier language for you there. So when Jesus says, I and my Father are one, he doesn't mean that they're the same person. What he means is they're one in essence. 
Because the Trinity teaches three distinct persons that make up one God, three persons, one essence. Now, if you want to just claim that this means the Father and Jesus are the same person, let's go ahead and take that interpretation of Jesus being one with the Father, and let's use it in John chapter 17. Let's go to John chapter 17. And I, I think this will uh, make a, a point here that anyone with a brain should be able to figure it out. So let me see. Uh, let me see. Where am I trying to look? All right. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So again, if you want to take John 10, 30, and then claim when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, that means they're the same exact person, then let's take that interpretation and let's use it also here in John chapter 17, where Jesus also makes the claim that he's one with the Father, but then he also says in verse 21, that they also may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that, thou also may be, that they also may be one in us. And he's, he's talking about believers there. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the last time I checked, we are not God. As believers, we are not God. We're different from God. Again, if you want to claim one, just automatically means Jesus is the Father. That word one proves your oneness doctrine. Then why don't you use it there in John 17, 21? Oh yeah, you can't because it wouldn't make any sense. So perhaps you need to rethink the way that you're interpreting John 10, verse 30. Hopefully that made sense for you guys that are watching this. Someone in the chat room says, the three were present at the baptism of Christ. People want to make this more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Amen. You saw the three distinct persons of the Trinity all in one place at the rapture. Not the rapture. Good night. At the baptism of Christ. Okay, now let's talk about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This right here is what the oneness crowd believes is their coup de grace, if you will. This is like their James 2. Get that hair out of the way there. This is like their James 2. This is what they would go to to try and prove that God transforms from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is the Father. It says here, in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I'm sure that the modalists who might be watching this to try and troll the comment section later are thinking, yeah, that's right. That proves it right there. Jesus is the Father, because it's talking about Jesus, and it calls him the Everlasting Father. Notice, folks, that it doesn't say God the Father, does it? No. Now, God the Father is used in Scripture in the New Testament, but it's not used here in Isaiah chapter 9. And if this was designed to teach us that Jesus is God the Father, don't you think it would be more clear than this? Don't you think it would say 
God the Father, the Prince of Peace? But no, it says the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And by the way, once again, here's a common theme you'll notice with respect to these oneness heretics is that they'll go to passages that are not even teaching the Trinity to teach their doctrine because they have no clear verses. This is the best they got. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Here's what this is talking about. I've heard several different interpretations. This is the one I subscribe to. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We know part of the Davidic covenant is that David's seed will be will consist of kings forever. And how exactly is that going to be fulfilled? Well, it's going to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, who one day will rule over this earth, starting at the millennium and forever. Starting at the millennium, he's king forever. With that in mind, you have to understand what the everlasting father is even talking about. It doesn't mean Jesus is God the Father, but it does mean that Jesus is the everlasting ruler. Remember what I said, Jesus will rule forever, starting at the millennium. It says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. The word father and the word ruler can be used interchangeably. And so Jesus, yes, will be an everlasting father, an everlasting ruler, because his government will have no end. You say, prove to me that father can mean ruler. Well, Isaiah chapter 22 says in verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will be like my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. This is prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my estimation, it says, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What do you think that means? He's going to be a ruler under the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will rule and reign starting at the millennium. Another place in which you could see father and ruler used interchangeably, Genesis chapter 45. It says in verse 8, This is after Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. He says, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God, and he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. You see father, you see lord, you see ruler there, all describing what? Someone who's in authority. Someone who is in a leadership position. And that perfectly describes Jesus Christ. That perfectly describes what he will be during the millennium. Luke chapter 1 says in verse 33, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom rather, there shall be no end. Yes, he's the everlasting father, because not only is he going to be a father, a ruler, over his own government, over his own kingdom, but that kingdom will be everlasting. Hence the term everlasting father, everlasting ruler. Daniel 7 says in verse 27, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom, excuse me, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
This kingdom will be everlasting. It's a beautiful thing. I can't wait for the millennium. I can't wait to rule and reign with the everlasting Father. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made unto... Well, actually, that's I put that in the wrong place. But anyway, I'll go ahead and read it. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, this has nothing to do with what I was talking about. I pasted it here in my notes in the wrong section, but that proves that the Father sent the Son. So he must have been the Son prior to his incarnation. That corroborates the eternal Sonship of Christ. But anyway, back to Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, Somebody in the chat room said Jesus is already in his reign. I don't believe that. I do think that Jesus has not started his reign yet. Right now, this world is ruled over by the devil. The Bible refers to Satan as the god of this world. The god of this world is the devil, but the god of the world will be the Lord Jesus Christ when he sets up his kingdom on this earth after Daniel's 70th week and, of course, after the Battle of Armageddon. So that's why I'm referring to him as a ruler in the future tense because I'm looking forward to the millennium. All right, let's look at Psalm chapter 2 now. Psalm chapter 2. Hopefully that was satisfactory for you guys who may have been wondering about Isaiah 9-6. Again, everlasting father just means that he's going to be an everlasting ruler because father means ruler. Think of founding fathers. Those are leaders, right, who helped found the United States of America. Psalm chapter 2, this day have I begotten thee. This one is used to... Uh, attack the eternal sonship of Christ, which is essential to the Trinitarian doctrine. It says in verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I read Galatians 4, 4 earlier, just because I had it there by mistake. But that is a verse that I think helps prove that Jesus has always been the son, because the son was sent into the world from the father, so he must have been the son prior to his incarnation. But the oneness heretics will then take you to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, to try and claim that he became the Son when he was begotten, since it says, This day have I begotten thee, in Psalm 2, verse 7. The question is, well, how do we interpret this? We interpret this in light of the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, we see that this verse is quoted. It says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that He hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So what this is clearly articulating here is the resurrection, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. So when it says, This day have I begotten thee, it is talking about the resurrection in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. No one in their right mind would claim that Jesus began to be the son at the resurrection. The main argument they would have is he became to be the son at his incarnation when he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem's manger. I've never heard someone claim he became to be the son in the, you know, at the resurrection because he was called the son before that. Including at his baptism when God the Father said, this is my beloved son. And of course, Jesus referred to himself as the son. But here's my point. 
When you see that word begotten, you have to understand based on the context that it could mean something different. So when Jesus is called the only begotten son, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The only begotten son there is a designation used because of the fact that Jesus was sent forth as the Son of God from the Father and born of a virgin. So in that way, he's the only begotten Son of the Father. When the Bible describes Jesus as the first begotten, okay, from the dead, the firstborn from the dead in Colossians chapter 1, what that is saying is that he's the first person to resurrect from the dead receive a glorified body, and never die again. Obviously, Lazarus came back from the dead. But the thing is, he died again. He didn't get a glorified body at that point. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and then he never died again. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who was the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. So Jesus is the first begotten in the sense that he came back to life, never to die again. He's the only begotten in the sense that he's the Son of God sent forth from the Father, born of a virgin, and that he has no earthly father. So I just wanted to clear that up. But anyway, that does not prove that Jesus began to be the Son at all. And let's look at Luke chapter 1. This will be the final thing that I cover here on this podcast. Luke chapter 1. They would claim this is when Jesus became the Son. Verse 31 says, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Now, the son of the highest is another way of saying the son of God. Now, in my sermon, I stopped here, which actually was a mistake. I should have kept reading, but I explained how this does not teach that Jesus became the son at his incarnation. Yeah, it says, and shall be called the son of the highest, but that doesn't mean that he became the son of the highest. Think about this. In fact, let me finish reading the verses, then I'll give you the explanation. Verse 33, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So again, basically the same thing as verse 32. Verse 32 says, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Verse 33 says, and shall be called the Son of God. Here's the point. Mary, pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ, she's told that this baby will be called the Son of God. Now this doesn't mean he became the Son, and here's why. Imagine if you had a, a mother who was pregnant with a baby. They just found out the gender of that baby and that it was going to be a boy. So they know that th this mother knows now she's carrying a boy. My question is, does that baby become a boy when it's born? No. Now you could say, my baby's going to be a boy when it's born, but that doesn't mean that it isn't a boy right now. Another picture of this could be naming your baby, right? So let's say uh, there, there's a woman out there who gets pregnant, and she has already come up with a name for her baby. So she's going to call him, I don't know, Tim or something like that, okay? So she's going to call her baby Tim. 
If somebody were, were to walk up to this mother who is pregnant and say, hey, what are you going to call your baby? What are you going to name your baby? And she says, I'm going to name my baby Tim. Now, that baby is named Tim right now, but guess what? When it's born, it will be named Tim. That doesn't mean that since it's going to be named Tim, that it isn't named Tim right now as it's in the womb. So Jesus is going to be called the Son of God. That doesn't mean that he wasn't, that doesn't negate the fact that he was the Son of God from eternity past. You have to understand, why is it that Jesus is even called the Son of God to begin with? There are multiple reasons, one of which is that he has no earthly father, that he is God manifest in the flesh, that he's existed from eternity past and has had a relationship with God the Father from everlasting, that he's been that he's been resurrected from the dead. That's another reason that he's called the Son of God. But my point is, you can't look to this passage and then say that he began to be the Son here because from a, gra a grammatical standpoint, that's clearly not what these verses are articulating. And then when you look at a picture with a pregnant lady right now who's already decided what she's going to name her baby, I mean, I just don't see how you can make it work. It doesn't make any logical sense. The oneness crowd attacks the eternal sonship of Christ because their incarnational sonship doctrine, which states that Jesus became the Son, is a mechanism by which they can get rid of the eternal second person of the Trinity, and it allows them to conceptualize a God in their own image, by the way, that morphs between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and those three different modes. All right, I want to read a few passages that would corroborate the eternal sonship here. Hebrews 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of, the, of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually." The Son of God designation does not point to the humanity of Christ. It points to his deity. The Son of God has no earthly father. That's what we see in Hebrews 7. He's without descent. Colossians chapter 1 attributes creation with the Son. It says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And in verse 16 it says, For by him, the antecedent is clearly the Son, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. So if the Son was the Son at creation, then obviously he was the Son before he was born on this earth. I want to conclude with these verses right here. John chapter 8 says in verse 17, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that, hath, that sent me beareth witness of me. Jesus doesn't bear witness of himself. The Father bears witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that this concept makes any sense whatsoever is if God is made up of three distinct persons. God doesn't love himself. That would make him prideful. But we know the Father loves the Son and has loved him from eternity past. We know that the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Holy Spirit. The three distinct persons of the Trinity love each other. And so in that way, God is love. The Father didn't send himself, he sent his Son. We know that Jesus is directly called 
the Son of the Father, 2 John chapter 1. In fact, I want to read this verse here because this kills one this 2 John chapter 1, it says, let me try and find it here. It says in verse 3, Grace be unto you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. There you go. And there are so many other scriptures as well that can be used to back up the Trinity doctrine. Why? Because the Trinity doctrine is biblical. Scores of scriptures can back it up. But anyway, the purpose of this podcast was to sharpen your sword a little bit and help you figure out what some of these verses that are ripped out of context by oneness heretics are actually talking about. They don't prove modalism. They don't prove the oneness God, which is worshipped by Islam, by the way. Islam believes in the oneness God as well. They don't prove this damnable heresy. They actually disprove it when you look at the context, when you study your Bible, and when you take a look at these scriptures with the Holy Spirit inside you, who will guide you into all truth. That's probably going to do it for the podcast tonight. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And I know there was a lot of scripture here that I was reading and things like that. I didn't want it to turn into just me reading a bunch of verses, but I think there's so much in this that, or there's so much rather that I could go to to try and uh, substantiate the claim that the Trinity is biblical, that really I could go all night for hours and hours and hours, and I just tried my best to limit it here for this podcast. But when it comes to these oneness devils, when it comes to these arguments that they have to try and promote their doctrine, they fall flat on their face every single time. It's a low IQ heresy, and it's damnable. I'll be back again next Monday for another episode of this podcast. It airs Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube.com slash BenTheBaptist. Thank you, everyone in the chat room for listening. I really appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you want some more content. And also make sure you subscribe to the podcast using the keyword Ben the Baptist on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, and also on Spotify. Until next time, God bless you all, and I'll talk to you guys again after a while.